As you probably noticed from your outlines, we're in Philippians again this morning. Someone wrote these words, and I would pass them on to you. Unity in the Christian church has been a challenging thing since the earliest days of Christianity. But it is a challenge we must continually take up. Why? Well, here are at least three reasons according to this author. Number one, there is a theological reason why we must be concerned about and pursue unity. Theologically, Jesus passionately prayed that his followers would be one. John 17, verses 21 and 23. Why? So that the world will believe that he was sent by the Father. The unity of the believers is rooted in the unity of Christ with his Father, an idea that Paul captures in his own writings about unity and oneness. Listen to Paul, Ephesians 4. There's one body and one spirit. Sorry to disappoint some people, but the Baptists don't have a corner on heaven. The Pentecostals are going to have a park there too. There are going to be some Lutherans there. There are going to be some Methodists. There's going to be some non-denominational people there. There's one body. If we would remember that, there's one body. Those denominational tags, now I'm a Baptist, but not a Baptist first. I'm a Christian first. So that's a theological thing. It's important to maintain unity in the essentials of the faith. Secondly, there's another reason, and it's evangelistically. A unified church is one of the strongest evidences of the truth of the gospel. Can I turn that around? A non-unified church is one of the strongest antagonists against the gospel. This is especially true in a world that's fragmented and divisive where counter-cultural unity among diverse people stands out. When the west of the world cannot seem to agree on anything, or bear to be around each people, especially those who are different, a church where natural enemies become brothers and sisters in Christ is a powerful alternative to the world's philosophy. Unity is a critical manifestation of a spirit-empowered church. That's why Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's why he wrote in Corinthians, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you are united in the same mind and the same judgment when it comes to the gospel. Where division might normally reign, unity should instead be leading us to an uncommon love. Where believers listen to and bear with one another. Jesus said in John 13, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. Someone wrote this, community is evangelistic. Now you know what the word community is? It's a combination of two words, com, which means with, and unity, which is what we're talking about. So it's unity with. Community is not just gathering together in a building or a regional land land area or a geographical thing. It's where people come together and have a unified heart. Jesus said, John 13, by this will all know you're my disciples if you love each other. 
a vibrant, strong, and committed community is inherently evangelistic. It is the embodiment of Christ on the earth. It is an example to a watching and searching world for the ideal of the fullness of human existence, of love, forgiveness, acceptance, and belonging. It is what the world hungers for, consciously or unconsciously. And this can only be achieved if the church and believers are distinct from a corrupt worldly culture in which they exist. Why would the world want to belong to the body of Christ if there's no difference between it and a social club or a sports club? Unity is powerfully evangelistic. And thirdly, militarily, we have a common enemy as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Highs and lows in the history of the church unity tend to correspond to the presence or absence of persecution. This is a commentary on the Western church. When things are comfy for the church, it finds reason to squabble and divide. When persecution arises, hmm, the whole tune changes, doesn't it? Gentleman here just got out of the military. My son is in Kuwait now in the military. Ask him. When we've got a mission, when we've got something to do in battle, all these little petty squabbles don't seem to matter much, do they? But the American church is very comfortable now, so it's got time to divide and squabble. When persecution arises, unity takes on a bit more urgency. There's one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of His people. The challenges we face, the spiritual battles we fight, demand that we embrace the truth that we are all one in Jesus Christ. And I was reminded in my reading, quote, The enemy hates unity. And he will do all that he can to sow discord and disharmony among the body of Christ. How? Through frivolous offenses, through quarrels, through splits and divisions. But more subtly, you know what he does? He takes the body and just lets them get out of community. They don't think community. They don't act community. They act individually because they are more important than the community. Why Paul, I think Paul wrote Hebrews. There's good men who disagree with me, but as I often say, if you disagree with me, that's okay. You can come and apologize later and I'll forgive you. Okay? I think Paul wrote Hebrews. In chapter 10, we've quoted this before. Let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, that day of judgment approaching. So it's this very important doctrine of unity that theologically, evangelistically, and militarily is something we should pursue. It's this subject of unity that will lead to joy that's before us in Philippians chapter 2. Paul turns his focus in this chapter on the responsibility of the Philippian believers to walk in accordance with the privilege they have of being sons and daughters of God. Paul makes it clear Christian unity is not an option. It's a must if they would experience true joy. Now, Philippians chapter 2, please look at verses 1 through 4 with me. 
We've already looked at verses 1 and 2. Number, verse number 1, and please remember that that word if should be since. We have motivations for unity. These are some reasons why we should pursue unity. These are blessings and privileges. What are they? Encouragement of Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, and the affection and sympathy of the Godhead. We have those things as believers. They are the motivators to unity. In verse 2, Paul kind of sets forth a personal appeal for their unity because it affects his joy. He says in verse 2, complete, make full my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and intent upon one purpose. That's what we looked at last week. Now this morning, I want to look at verses 3 and 4. Please notice if you will. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In these verses, I kind of describe it as Paul putting some flesh on the bones. And in this passage, he gives to us three things that we're not to do and two things that we must do if we're going to maintain unity and experience the joy that God has for us. Perhaps you've heard of James Montgomery Boyce. If you haven't, uh, he's uh, gone to be with the Lord. I actually heard him preach his last sermon in Philadelphia a few years ago. Right after that service, it was discovered that he had uh, liver cancer. And in eight weeks, he went home to be with the Lord. He was a powerful preacher, a preacher of the 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. Great, great congregation. They loved each other. They reached out in the community. Well, he wrote a commentary. Actually, he wrote several commentaries. And on this particular portion of Scripture, this is what he titled it, Living for Others. And I quote his introductory statements. Several years ago, there was a well-known advertisement for a brand of underwear called BVDs. The advertisement for BVDs read this way. Next to myself, I like my BVDs best. There's too many, too many consonants there. Next to myself, I like BVDs best. Naturally, he says, the advertisement was based on the fact that underwear is worn next to the skin. But the humor came from the equally well-known fact that no one is better liked by anyone than the individual himself. The concern of each person for himself or herself is so well ingrained in human nature that almost no one contests it. The policies of governments as well as the conduct of millions of people flow from that thought. Our text, which we're studying this morning, is the Christian refutation of that principle because it says that the one who has believed in Christ is first of all to look out for someone else. Talk about an anti-cultural statement. Paul has been speaking to the Christians at Philippi about proper Christian conduct. He's told them they are citizens of heaven. They should be united in an aggressive proclamation of the gospel. He now applies these themes to the conduct of each individual Christian. One commentator has written, here Boyce is quoting someone else, Paul does not leave the question of the worthy life which produces the steadfast stand until he brings it to the rest on the worthy life as it is found in the individual. A man or woman not of self-seeking conceitedness, but with a correctly humble estimate of themselves, seeking the welfare of others and putting them first. Steadfastness depends on unity, and unity depends on me. Timely words. 
So, let's look at this passage. Did you notice the title of the sermon? This is not from Boyce, this is from someone else. I don't know where I got it. In this passage, he goes from comfortable theorizing to annoying meddling. My father was a pastor for many years. And there was one man in our church I can remember who quite often, after my father would preach, would come up to him after the sermon and say, Preacher! Yeah? You know you did it again. What? Well, this morning you went from preaching to meddling. What does that mean? Well, that preaching's out there. Meddling means in here. Like the lady that I heard at New Buffalo Alliance Church. She was coming out of the church and she came up to Pastor Wise and she said, Oh, Pastor Wise, you stepped all over my toes this morning. He said, Oh, I'm I'm really, really sorry. Oh, she said, Oh, don't be sorry. I needed it. He goes, No, I wasn't aiming for your toes. I was aiming for your heart. That's what Paul's doing here now. From the theorizing to the meddling. He's going to get down to where we live. As old J. Vernon McGee used to say, what a rubber meets a road. Now let me remind you, if you're a student of the Scriptures, this matter of living for others is not unique to Paul's letter to the Philippians. In Galatians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Romans chapter 12, and Romans chapter 15, he speaks the same thing, perhaps a little bit different words of being in agreement, being in unity, bearing one another's burdens, doing everything I can for the sake of others, loving others with a brotherly affection, outdoing others and showing honor. So this is not unique to this little epistle. It's a strand that runs through the Bible, particularly the New Testament. Secondly, let me remind you this morning that at the heart of the opposite of this principle, we will find the working of Satan. When you find disunity and self-centeredness and conceit and what I would call spiritual arrogance, you can be assured there's a spirit behind it, but it is not the Spirit of God. Trivia question. Who committed the first sin? It wasn't Adam and Eve. It was Satan. Actually, Lucifer. Ezekiel 28. Lucifer committed the first sin who then became Satan and took a third of the angelic beings with him who then became demons. So if you read Ezekiel 28, you can read an account. And I don't want to go into a lot of things about that chapter. I will say just three things. Number one, I'm convinced that in that chapter he does speak of Satan. The descriptions, the character of that one. I know at the beginning it's talking about a king of another nation. But as you work your way down through it, he's talking about someone who could only be described as Satan. So he's speaking about Satan in that passage. Secondly, Lucifer was his name. Lucifer was to lead creation in the worship of God. That was his assignment as a created angelic being. But what did he do? He was overcome with pride and he was cast out of heaven with a third of the angels. Satan's goal was to take God off his throne so that he could usurp God's position and power and prestige. It was a self-serving, self-exalting attitude that was only concerned for his own welfare and interests. As I've said before, and I probably will say again in my ministry, it is this attitude and spirit that every precious baby is born with into the world. It's a part of their nature. It's a sinful nature 
It cares more about itself than anyone else. And if you've got children, I should be hearing, amen. <laughs> yeah. And if you were a child, that's all of us. It's there. Do you have to teach your children how to be self-centered? If you do, I'll meet that child. No, it's a part of who they are. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. Tell us about the one who works in the sons of disobedience, Satan, the power. That's where it came from. So whenever we find the opposite of this principle that Paul's talking about this morning, be assured that Satan or his demons are energizing. They are working. They're the ones behind it. Just a quick reminder, this morning, physically when we're born, you'll see on your outline, it's Y-O-J. Yourself first, others maybe, Jesus only if it benefits me. But when I become a Christian, it's turned around. It's Jesus Christ first, others second, and me or yourself last. That's the work of grace that's done in a person's heart. And even though, however, we are redeemed by the blood of Christ and that is changed, the old man, the old nature remains. And if we are not diligent to put him off and put on the new man, we will be in trouble. And so we find in the heart and mind of Christians this warfare going on all the time. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17. The spirit wars against the flesh, as Paul said to the Galatian believers. Well, what are those three do-nots and what are those three do, or two do's? What are we not to do and what are we supposed to do? Let me quote here quickly A.W. Tozer before I jump into them. Because uh, Paul begins here, please notice, on a negative note. And we live in a day when we don't want to hear negative. Only accentuate the positive. Paul starts out, do nothing or do not do anything out of selfish ambition and so on. Tozer says people are always bringing pressure to bear on the pulpit to be positive. But, he once said, you have to breathe out the poison as well as breathe in the oxygen. So it was with the church at Philippi. This church was located in a pagan part of the world, Europe. The whole continent, north and west, for thousands of square miles, had no knowledge of Christ or the gospel or the Christian life at all. This region was gripped by idolatry and cruel traditions. It was, we might call, a macho culture with the most grievous existence for women, children, elderly, slaves, handicapped, and sick people. Theirs was a life of what someone has called bleak, despair. Now these members of the Philippian church were saved or redeemed out of this kind of culture. They were among the first Europeans to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They did not have any part of New Testament writing upon which to govern their lives. So the question would be, how are we supposed to live? And so Paul starts out, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But in its place, do this and do this. And that's what we're talking about this morning. And it's just as relevant today in our lives as it was in their day. So what are those three do-nots? Please notice in verse 3. Verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or do not do anything out of selfish ambition. 
Selfish ambition is one of those works of the flesh that are listed in Galatians chapter 5. There's 15 of them. And it's one of those works of the flesh. The word selfish in the original language means a contentious, fractious spirit that both creates and enjoys division. Know anybody like that? Hendrickson says, if everyone is constantly thinking of themselves, how are you ever going to have unity? Isn't it interesting? We call them selfies. Very, very descriptive of this generation. It's all about me. Now, there's nothing wrong with ambition, don't get me wrong. Paul is not saying, and God is not saying, you shouldn't have ambition. God wants all of his people to be ambitious. But God is the one who defines our ambitions. And so if God were speaking in my place this morning, and he is from his word, he would say this, love me with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. That should be my primary ambition. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was asked the question, what is the great commandment? What was his answer? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and don't forget the second part, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. God would tell us this morning, your chief end is to glorify me and enjoy me forever. Your ambition should include presenting your body as a living sacrifice to me. You should regularly be absolutely filled with my spirit. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Whatever you do, do to the glory of me. Do to other people what you would have them do to you. Those should be our ambitions. Those are the things that should drive us every day. Take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee, the songwriter said. There must not be one square inch of my life not a single cell in my body, not a penny in my money box, not one member of my family whom I love, which I have not yielded to Jesus, who is my King. I commit everything to Him is my ambition. The Christian is to have the most magnificent ambitions of any people living. What should they be? Well, it should be while one person in the world remains who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I must live to make sure the gospel gets to Him. I'd like to stop here and camp for a while. Because that is not the ambition of the American church by and large. Buildings, attendance, committees, etc., etc., ad nauseum. What should consume you and me every day of our lives? It should have crossed my mind at least one time. Lord, how many people are there still left in the world who's never heard the name of Jesus? And dear God, how can I use my intellectual ability, my physical ability, my financial ability? How can I partner with your people? Lord, what can we do to get the gospel to them? But I can tell you from 50 years of pastoring, that's a rare thought. Well, we're consumed with the American dream. What is the American dream? One word. More. 
An old Puritan wrote a book, The Rare Jewel of Contentment. That should consume my life and living legacy. That's your legacy. That should be the passion of this body of Christ. Constantly focused outward. How can we reach the lost? Across the street, across the city, across the nation, and across the world. We want the whole world to sing the praises of Jesus. Our ambitions are saying, this is what I'm going to do with my life. Every day I want to walk closer to the Lord. Every night I want to end the day by saying, God, I love you. I want to be a man or woman of God someday who gallops on white stallions among the armies of the Lamb. I want to ascend on eagles' wings to heaven, surrounded by angels. I want to see a new universe where every galaxy and every blade of grass is redolent with the righteousness of Christ. I want to see the Lord in all of His glory in Emmanuel's land, someone said. Here's what Paul is saying. Five questions. What does God want me to do? What does God want me to be? How does God want me to use my time and my money for His kingdom? How can I best discharge my stewardship of the gifts that God has entrusted to me? For one day I must give an account of them. What tasks are the priority for Christians like me in this generation? And how can I best serve the Savior who died in my place bearing my sins on the cross. Now, the Bible is an honest book. Some people don't like the Bible because it is honest. But the Bible records for us some people who acted out of selfish ambition, but it also tells us what it cost them. Mrs. Zebedee, James and John's mommy, brought them to Jesus one day, and you remember what happened there? They got a lesson on what it means to really serve. Do you remember Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8? Paul said, you and your money, out of here. May you and your money perish. You don't understand anything at all about the things of God. Remember, Simon, when he saw the gift of the Holy Spirit given, when they put their hands on people, he goes, ah, I'd like to have that for myself. I want to exalt myself in the presence of other believers. How about Lot? Can you say Sodom and Gomorrah? How about King David? Can you say Bathsheba and all of the consequences? How about Gehazi? Remember who Gehazi was? Elijah's servant. And Elijah sent the man away who was healed of leprosy. And he said, here, I'd like to give you something. Elijah said, no, 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 I don't want anything. Gehazi heard it. And so when the servant went away, he, he, he ran down and captured him. He said, oh, by the way, my master changed his mind. He'd like to have something. And when he got back in the house, Elijah said, uh, where you been, Gehazi? Oh, I just went to Starbucks, had a cup of coffee. I was just, just out, just cooling around. No, 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 Gehazi, you're a liar. You went and got some garments in reward for what God did through me. And the leprosy that I healed Naaman of, it's going to afflict you. And it did because of his self-centered desires. How about King Nebuchadnezzar, who spent seven years out in the field like an animal? How about the prodigal son? See, there are a lot of instances of people who acted out of selfish ambition and we see the cost that they paid. 
Secondly, not only do nothing out of selfish ambition, but he says in verse 3, do nothing out of vain conceit. The end result of this key word is vain. The word vain means empty, void, or hollow, boasting, because it's self-focused. I like this. Someone said, I may brag that I've reached the top of the ladder, only to find that it's not leaning against the wall. Can you picture that? Bragging about something that comes to nothing. Sadhu Sundar Singh was an Indian convert from Sikhism, died in 1929, compared many in the church to a kind of boulder in the Himalayas. When you smash this boulder open, on the inside is nothing. The same geological marvel is found in New Zealand, where smooth, round boulders are scattered across the beach near Meraki, and when you pick them up, they're just empty shells of rocks. Hendrickson said it well, the emptier the head, the louder the boast. The emptier the head, the louder the boast. Do you remember what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 23 as he's talking to the Pharisees? That's the woe chapter. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, you should first of all clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs or graves. Outwardly they appear beautiful, but within they are full of dead men's bones. So you also outwardly appear to be righteous, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Do not do anything out of vain, empty conceit. Thirdly, in verse 4 he says, Do not look out only, and I'm emphasizing the word only, because that's the key word there. Do not look out only for your own interest. That is, stop majoring upon your own interest. Someone has said it this way, Find your joy in making others joyful. I like that. Find your joy in making others joyful. Now again, we are to look out for our own interests. He's not saying totally ignore yourself. We have to look out for our families, our marriages, our employment, our education, our property, our success, our reputation, our happiness, and so on. But what Paul is talking about here is an attitude that says, think only of yourself, or at least mostly about yourself. Talk about yourself. Use the word I as often as possible. Mirror yourself continually in the opinions of others. Listen greedily to what people say about you. Expect to be appreciated. Be suspicious. Be jealous and envious. Be sensitive to slights. Never forgive a criticism. Trust nobody but yourself. Insist on being considerate and respectful from others. Demand agreement with your views on everything. And be sure to sulk if people are not grateful for the favors you've shown them. Never forget a service you've given someone. Do as little as possible for others. Does that sound common? That's the mantra of this culture. He says, don't let that be true of you. You ever heard of Shirley MacLaine? Shirley MacLaine, I think her book or her movie was Out on a Limb. Well, I think she fell out of the tree. She wasn't just on a limb. Listen to what she says. she's She's the queen of this. Quote, the most pleasurable journey you can take is through yourself. 
the only sustaining love involvement is with yourself. When you look back on your life and try to figure out where you've been and where you're going, when you look at your work, when you look at your love affairs, your marriages, your children, your pain and happiness, when you examine all that closely, what you really find out is that the only person you can really go to sleep with is yourself. The only thing you have is working to the consummation of your own personal identity. And that's what I've been trying to do all my life. Shirley MacLaine tells the world that she's been looking out to her own interests all her life, and she's proud of it. Self-interest says this, take care of number one, and who's number one? Moi. In my study yesterday, I came across something. I'm just going to refer to it. Do you know what a spiritual narcissist is? A spiritual narcissist is someone who even used the gospel to build themselves up while they're tearing others down. They know enough scripture to be dangerous. Here are ten signs of spiritual narcissists. Number one, they constantly refer to their own achievements. Number two, they butt into or invade conversations. Number three, they know equally how to twist the scriptures to their own end. Number four, they profess that they love, but they don't show it. Number five, they talk, but they don't listen. Number six, they live in echo chambers. You know what that is? They surround themselves with individuals who just mimic back to them what they believe and want to hear. Number seven, they refuse to acknowledge their mistakes. Number eight, they tear others down. Number nine, they lead by force and not example. And finally, they ultimately put God somewhere down the list after themselves. I just finished reading a book recently. I don't need to tell you the name of the lady who advised me to read it. I knew her and her husband for many years. He and I were really good friends. After he died, recently, very suddenly, at the conclusion of the funeral, she said, Pastor Ed, I need to talk to you. I said, what do you need to tell me? You didn't know, and I'll say Fred, that's not his name. You didn't know, really know Fred. I go, mm, what do you mean? I want you to read this book. It's called Cry for Justice. Because in that book you will find out that the church, as well as many marriages, is full of bullies. Bullies. The illustration is given over and over and over in this book about, at least in this point, a man who's in the church. Very well respected. On the deacon board, the elder board, the sum board, and he's just... But at home, he is abusive in many ways. And when she brings that to the attention of the leadership, they're going, "Mm, come on, honey, what you need to do is submit. God's word says, yeah, but no, 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 doesn't give any extent, no no insinuating circumstances, just submit, because if you would submit more, he wouldn't be that way. He also gives many illustrations in that book of bullies in the church. And I look back over 50 years and I'm going, oh, now I see. These are people who are consumed with themselves. And whatever it costs, they will protect and advance their own personal 
agenda. And I believe if what this man says, and by the way, he was a pastor for 30 years, if what he says is true, that what we're talking about this morning has infiltrated the, the Christian church like a plague, I think I'm safe in saying that a sure way to destroy unity and kill joy in a church is to have its members to be ambitious for what I can get out of it. To care mostly and only for my interests and come to the conclusion that I am better or my needs are more important than everyone else's or to live for myself primarily. These attitudes and these motives must not be present. Don't do them. Well, what are we supposed to do? In their place, he tells us in verse 3 and verse 4 two things we should do. Number one, with humility of mind, we are to regard others to be more important than ourselves. Please notice where it starts, in the mind. The King James Version, which I memorized and learned from, says it this way, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. The, the point is not what they actually are. It's what you esteem them to be. It's how you count them to be. It's how you regard them to be as more important. Am I going to take interest just for my own thoughts? Will I encourage them and take the time to help them? Yes, says Paul, that's what you should do. Now, why can I do that? Because the grace of God has changed my heart. It's interesting. The word regard is a mathematical term in the Greek language. It means to calculate something. It means to look at a situation or a problem and do a calculation. We add up the needs of others. We subtract our own personal interests. And we come to the bottom line of what would be most beneficial to others. And then we act on that calculation. And of course, the source of this humility is the cross. Why did Paul say in Romans chapter 1 and verse 14, I'm a debtor. I am in debt with the gospel to others. I am to live to get the gospel to others. Why did Paul say that? Because he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Because of what Christ had done. Christ loved us, died for us, forgave us, accepted us, justified us, gave us eternal life, made us heirs of the world to come. He treated us as worthy, even though we were not. That's where this lowliness, this humility comes from. We feel overwhelmed by the grace of God bygone grace in the cross, but moment by moment living grace every day. You have there on your outline this particular phrase, Christians are stunned into lowliness. They are stunned into humility when we consider what we deserved and what Christ did for us. Freely we have been served, therefore we should freely serve. Secondly, he says, do look out for the interest of others. The first one is the mind, the second one is the practice. I think about it, and then I put it into practice. Well, what do we say to such things as this? Well, here's the message for us today. Here's some takeaway lessons. Number one, unity is more than just a subject for a Sunday morning sermon. It's a non-negotiable. If living legacy wants to experience the fullness of life and health and joy of the Spirit of God, then there must be unity. And secondly, as I was reading, Paul, and I believe God is more concerned with the why than the what. Do you remember what God said to Samuel as he was looking for a king? Went down to Jesse's household. Jesse, where are your sons? I'm here to anoint a king. Bring him in. 
Oh, God, look, look how cool this one is. This one? No, that's not the one. He prayed them all for him. And he got to the end of the sons in the house, and he said, uh, Is this all you got? Well, there's this kid out in the field. Kind of ruddy looking. Samuel said, Bring him here. David walked past Samuel, and God said, That's the one. What's the principle for Samuel 16, 7? Man looks on the outside, but God. See, the problem with being conceited and vain and selfish is a heart issue because on the outside, we are all able to wear a mask and pretend to be something that we're not. He's getting to the heart of the issue, talking about the heart before God. A guy by the name of Clark said it this way, an evil act done with a good motive is bad, but a good act done with an evil motive is also bad. One can sin by doing some good and commendable church work if it's done with the wrong motive and the wrong reason. See, it's a hard issue. It's where God sees. Is unity crucial theologically, evangelistically, and militarily? We started out that way. Yes, it's crucial. It's very, very important for any church. So Christians, we should be asking ourselves some questions this morning as we leave. Am I seeking to avoid those things that I'm not supposed to be doing? Am I seeking to not be selfish in my ambition? Or vain conceit? Or be concerned only with my own personal interests? And in the place of those three things that I'm not supposed to do, am I actively pursuing in humility, looking out, thinking about the interests of others, and then looking for ways to put that into practice? Am I humble? You know the definition of humility? I I borrow this. I just heard it recently. You know what humility is? Oh, well, you got to think less of yourself. Nope. That's not humility. Humility is thinking of yourself less. You see the difference? Humility is not thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. You get a group of people whose primary focus is to live for the glory of God and the blessing and benefit of other believers and willing to take action upon that and humble themselves one before another, you'll have a thriving, joyful, powerful congregation to the glory of God. So Psalm 139 says, Lord, search me. Between you and the Lord now, perhaps even later, Lord, where am I at on this? How do I measure up to your standard? And the great thing is this, that if I'm not measuring up as I ought, I can confess my sin, God will forgive me, and God will restore to me what I should be. And if a person here this morning is not a Christian, let me share with you the gospel real quickly. Jesus said in Matthew 16, if anyone wants to follow me, what's the first requirement? What's the first requirement? To deny what? Self. Deny yourself. Pick up a cross every day, And the cross is an instrument of death, dying to myself on a day-to-day basis and following Christ and obeying Him, whatever He calls me to do. So a person becomes a Christian. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, the very first beatitude. Remember what it was? Blessed are the poor. You know what that word poor in spirit means? It literally means those who are bankrupt in spirit. Those who come before God, as the songwriter said, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. 
Naked I come to you for dress. Helpless I look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I will die. I come completely taking my hands off of my life, my desires, my goals, my everything, and I say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm lost. I'm helpless. Save me for Christ's sake. Change me. Make me a brand new creation. And every person who does that, the Bible says, every person who comes humbly before God, not making demands, not trying to drive a bargain, not trying to have an arbitrator, not sitting down at the table and said, okay, God, you throw a few things in and I'll throw a few things in and we'll come to a compromise. No. Totally bankrupt. Totally bowing down and humbling myself before God and acknowledging that Christ died for me. He said, you'll be a Christian. You'll be in the kingdom of God. That's the message of salvation, and that's the Christian life on a regular basis over and over again.